Today's guest is Tim Kennedy, retired fighter, Army Special Forces, TV host, entrepreneur, proud American, and generally all-American badass. Uh, Tim, thanks again for your time with speaking with us today. Dude, my pleasure. Excellent. So as I was saying just before we turned on the mic, uh, originally I wanted to do this interview because I was a big fan of your fighting career, and it's it's a very good place to begin the conversation. Can you just take us through how you originally got involved in, in MMA and fighting? It was just part of my life. Um, my dad started me in martial arts when I was a kid, uh, Shotokan Karate and Taekwondo, like the, the city civic center. And then um, I started doing Brazilian or Japanese jiu-jitsu. Brazilian jiu-jitsu hadn't really like made a presence in the United States yet. And um, I started doing Hawaiian Kempo with John Hackleman, which was my introduction to MMA because Chuck Liddell was one of the guys that trained out of the pit. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of a being a wrestler, being an athlete, growing up in an athlete home, um, starting martial arts as a kid. It just was a pretty straightforward process. Okay. Um, that's interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of the things I see of you online is your BJJ training. But do you have a wrestling background? Because typically the wrestlers aren't too concerned with BJJ, a very top control game, but you tend to mention more of BJJ. So how do you sort of mix the two uh, sports or, or interests? Yeah, so I love grappling across all styles. Um, I love wrestling, freestyle wrestling, Greco wrestling, collegiate wrestling. I love Sambo. I love um, catch wrestling. I love no-gi grappling. I love Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so uh, judo, my, my style is really blurs the line of all of those things. If you watch me like yesterday, we we're doing a fresh guy on me every two minutes for eight minutes for six rounds. Um, so you'd have like an eight minute round with four fresh partners every two minutes. And that would, that would happen. Like what I tried to execute was for yesterday, a very judo oriented game tomorrow in a sports jujitsu class. I'm going to be doing a bunch of nerdy, geeky, dorky sports jujitsu things uh, that I would never do in a real fight, that I would never do, you know, on the street, but I enjoy it. So uh, how do you get uh, – so I assume you must be living in California to walk in into the pit with Hackleman. Uh, do you have any – you must have some really interesting stories around that time of developing and, and working with some of these guys because I assume Chuck is already, you know, the Chuck Liddell that we know or is he still sort of coming up? through that area being managed by Dana. No, he was um, he was fighting for the International Fighting Championship, the IFC. And um, so he hadn't even made his way to the UFC yet. Um, it was, you know, Jake Shields was walking in with Bo Taylor and Gan McGee and Scott Adams. Um, you know, Tito Ortiz, Randy Couture, Dan Henderson. Like, these were guys that would just walk into the gym. Um I think Randy had already been at the UFC, uh, Dan and Matt, Mike, Matt, Matt Lindland was my first, um, snapshot into, Hey man, I, I could be good at this. Cause you know, Matt was already doing really well and obviously been to the Olympics and was a, was a talented fighter in a lot of different pugilistic sports. Um, you know, like my first pro fight I lost and my first pro win that I had ever in a, in a career, uh, Chuck Liddell was in my corner, um, helping me cut weight. He, uh, I had no money. So he took me out to pizza after I made weight, um, you know, running up dunes in Aurora Grande, California with John Hackman yelling at you and wheelbarrows full of weights. Uh, it was just, it was a really uncivilized 
era of MMA. Um, you know, being in California, I drive down to Tijuana to make a buck in a fight, um, to Cobra Indian Casino to do a bare knuckle fight, to go to the Chumash Casino to do a different, you know, type of fight. So it was, it was just, you just wanted to fight. And now that, you know, I mean, you've spent years doing this, how do you sort of balance or what are your thoughts on, I guess, a lot of that caveman training versus understanding the, the technicalities and how you, you balance the two between sort of, you know, being, being aggressive versus being technical. Robbie Lawler is a good example of just unadulterated violence. You know, that guy can, um, you know, he's going to hurt you from anywhere and he's always had that power, you know, like that kind of farm, strength um and you know but then, then you look at uh not to take anything away from john jones but you know the, the skill and the technique and the ingenuity into his movement and how he trains is is kind of beautiful it's like a beautiful violence um and i there i think there's there's positive things about kind of both of those elements of of fighters what, what do you think? Do you have any take on Lawler's another one of my favorite fighters, and he's one of the very, very few guys that sort of uh, went through a period of mediocrity where I think, you know, what, for a few years, I think he was even fighting below 500 before he got reintroduced to the, the UFC and then became champion. Um, how, how do you think as an individual to be able to sort of come out of that rut and, and come back? It was It's quite a fascinating comeback story that we don't see very much of in, in the sport of MMA. I mean, I don't know. I think uh, I think it's a disservice to Robbie and to a lot of fighters to include like guys like Michael Bisping um, that you know calling it a, a rut. When you look at the guys that he was fighting, like Robbie dropped a fight to me. Um, like honestly, on that night, I don't think there's a 185er on the planet that would have beaten me. Um, you know, and so you have in these cycles of being an athlete, specifically a fighter like these peaks and valleys and, um, and, and sometimes it has to do with the level of competition that just exists that you're having to fight with. And you're like, Oh man, this guy's dropped two, three fights. Like, like, is he considering retirement? You're like, dude, look at who he just fought, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, and it's, it is, it is the hardest sport on the planet. It is. It is. Um, there's, there's legendary stories from in the gym and guys that you fought. I'll, I'll ask you about your, your time in the cage in a second, but are there any particular stories or, or individuals that you sort of cross paths with in the, in the gym that you'd be interested in sharing? Oh my gosh. In 17 years as a professional fighter, you know, fighting in pretty much the two marquee gyms at, in their era. Um, you know, I finished my career at Jack Jackson, Winkle John in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, you know, that, that's a, a gym that if you look at it, you're like, oh, there's a period of time where people are like, has Jackson Winklejohn lost it? Like they're, you know, they don't have the same number of champions that they had have previously. You're like, that's insane. You know, they, they, they have the highest pedigree of fighters fighting the best athletes in the world for championships all the time. So it's a similar representation of, it's just, the nature of how hard the sport is, um, to, to be able to get those wins. Um, you know, being in there where you have Diego Sanchez, Holly Holm, um, Cub Swanson, Rashad Evans, John Jones, you know, I was at the gym when Ryan Stan and I were training partners and John and Rashad hadn't quite had a falling out. 
Um, so seeing the dynamics and the chemistry in the gym of, you know, the current champion Rashad, seeing the young lion kind of chomping at the bit to get there, um, being able to negotiate those waters is, is tricky. You know, going all the way back to the T.D. Ortiz, Chuck Liddell one era, like that's, I've been here this whole time in both those gyms. So just complete craziness. There's a really, uh, there's some really interesting to topics sort of shooting off there. I mean, uh, from what I've seen online, you and Cerrone are good friends. What did you think about his words coming out uh, against Jackson Wink and, and in his opinion, sort of the low quality of, of training that he perceived there? I mean, I respect Cowboy um, in every imaginable way. And Cowboy is always somebody that is going to call things how he sees them. Um, Cowboy's a business guy. You know, there's, if I was in his shoes and, you know, my opponent, well, if a guy shows up to the gym to train, AKA Mike Perry, and he is supposed to, you know, he signs a contract with the gym to train for, you know, three months or six months. And then his opponent gets changed and his opponent gets changed to cowboy. The gym's contractually obligated to help Perry get ready for his fight, but Cowboy is a fighter out of Jackson Winklejohn. So, like, what are you supposed to do as as the gym owner? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, and from Cowboy's perspective, there's only one answer, which is kick that other dude out of the gym, break the contract, and stay loyal, which I get. But then from the, you know, the Winklejohn perspective, like, I am under a, a binding contract with another athlete to provide a service, and I would be breaking my word and contractually – um, a business agreement to do something for this guy. So like, I get both perspectives and I 100% love Cowboy for calling shots how he sees them. And then I also understand Winkle John and um, Greg's perspective of being like, hey man, we are running a gym and a business and this guy is a paying customer that's here to train. Mm, okay. And, um, you know, you mentioned sort of being there through the whole time period. What, what were your sort of thoughts on the fact that, um, that Golden Boy set up a, a Tito Chuck three and I guess the, the outcome of the match as well? Uh, <laughs> Next. No, I mean, it's, it's a bummer. I like both the guys. You know, I like Chuck and I like Tito. Um, and, it always it, it, it always sucks watching two guys that you know and like um, having to fight each other. And, you know, they have their own chemistry and their own problems and they have their own lives and they have their own brands and, you know, they have their own image. And, like, I didn't – there's there, there's not a win in that situation from my perspective. Like, I don't know what the win is there. Do you think is, – is that sort of common where, you know, the online dialogue or I think Chuck even said it publicly that, that he needed the money and was coming back – is that pretty common? Like you're, you're quite, you're in an advantageous and lucky position where you were set up to continue in a life after fighting. But is this quite a common thing where, uh, where guys don't really have the foresight to think about what they're going to do once they start hitting their late thirties and forties? Yeah. The, um, it's scary being a fighter. You know, it's, um, it's frightening to, be putting everything on the line, you know, for this escapade, this dance of violence in front of, you know, millions of people, there's no retirement plan. Um, you know, there's no thinking about the future. Like you want to be world champion and you'll sacrifice everything to be world champion. And, um, 
it's there's no other way to do it. You know, if if, if a fighter is thinking about his four hundred one, um, you know, his his IRA, and um, you know, if he's going to have a, a job with the company in a in some capacity after he's like, that's not a champion. You know, a champion is is a hungry lion that's looking at an antelope that's like, I'm going to tear that thing down, um, and I'm going to beat the hyena to it. This is um. And that's, and that's that weird conflict. You know, you, you look, Conor McGregor is a great example of him. You know, like he, he'd spend all of his money as Floyd would just so they could be hungry for the next fight. Uh, and that's, that is, that's a champion kind of mentality and a spirit of like, I, I have to, I have to be hungry, both literally and figuratively to need to be the best in the world. Interesting. And you had mentioned, um, with John Jones as well, was, was there the, you know, again, for going back, I certainly remember sort of the Rashad John Jones battle that happened and, and why was he getting this shot and how he came up? Was there the, a lot of buzz around him before that fight that this was going to be the next big thing? Man, when John walked into the gym, uh, there's not a question that he was going to be the next big thing. Um, I had already been a professional fighter for 10 years and I would show some, I would show one thing that it took me two years to master and John tried it on his next opponent. Yeah. Right. You know, it, it was infuriating, um, but also magical to watch that level of an athlete just adapt everything to, you know, who he was as a person and how he was as an athlete. So when he picks it up so quick, cause I've heard stories that he, uh, doesn't take his training very seriously and he's he's almost a little bit lax and he still is able to effectively decimate people is is he really that good like he, did he just find exactly what he needed to do in life no he uh he's an athlete he's a human he bleeds you know Gustafson proved that um and he at the gym he's not he's not like me um, and I could I could never understand how he is as an athlete where, you know, he's going to come in late or he's going to go out the night before I'm like this regimented, disciplined military approach to training. Um, and because he has so much talent, he doesn't need to be like me. Like I'm a hairy troll. I had to be like that just so I had a chance. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, you know, you were you were very competitive right right up to the end and and within the mix. What um, and I mean, you still train online. You look like you're in fantastic shape. Mentally, at one what point did you sort of realize or come to the conclusion that that your time was up in the game? Uh, I don't. I mean, it never is, right? Like, I'm still an athlete. I'm still in shape. I still train as if I'm fighting, um, but. And I, there's always like this, uh, I don't know, a string attached to your core, to your center of who you are as a person. If you're a fighter, um, you know, until, until I die, I'll always think about fighting. Um, till the day I die, I'll always think about being in war. Not that I like war. It's the most horrible thing ever, but like the, the highest moments of my life and the lowest moments of my life have happened as a fighter and as a warrior. So there, you know, there's, there's elements there that like, I can't exist without, um, it's just part of who I am as a person. And, um, I, and I am doing a very poor job of explaining what, whatever that thing is. And I don't know what that thing is inside of us. 
but it's, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. It's there. And, um, there wasn't a point, you know, I'm sitting after this, the, my last fight and, um, you know, I got thumped up and there, there's a myriad, there's a myriad of excuses of, of why I lost, um, cutting weight with a Rashad fight that fell through with an opponent, blah, 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 blah. You know, what you're, what it is, is I'm an, I'm in an ER. I'm, you know, in my late thirties and I have other options and I'm in a position now where had I won that fight, we're talking about title contendership Now that I've lost that fight. You know, we're, we're looking at three, four fights back to be in a position and I just want to be world champion. It's like, if that's not, a, if that's not a card on the table, then I don't want to do it. Hmm. How, how do you view your own legacy in the fight game? Legacy. I've never thought about it. I don't care. Um, you know, the, uh, I think an equal portion of people like that, that walk up to me, um, know me for, for what I've done outside of the octagon, um, in comparison to what I have done in the octagon. And that is rapidly changing to people already forgetting, um, or have forgotten what I did and what I've done, what fights I've won, what titles I've, I've fought for main events in the UFC that I was in. Um, you know, th- th- those are already like dreams in a distant past. Um, you know, whereas I still got 40 more years of life, um, to make a difference in a lot of different ways. And that's, I think that's what a lot of people see and recognize. Uh, and that's what I care about. If you want to talk about legacy, it's those things that I'm, that I'm doing that I think are going to really leave a mark. Okay. Uh, we'll finish up sort of on the MMA stuff, but was there a particular fight or fighter that was, uh, I guess that you felt was the, the biggest challenge? Uh, no, I mean, I, the, the, I had great fights, you know, beating Michael Bisbing and beating Robbie Lawler and main event and fight for the troops three against Havana Atal. Um, you know, like it, it was the, it's the, actually the losses that bother me. You know, Yoel Romero, um, his stool gate where he didn't get off the stool and I thought I'd won. I'd take my mouthpiece out and I'd get knocked out when he finally answers the bell two minutes later. Um, to, you know, when I fight Shockeray for the Strike Force title and a fight that I thought I won and I lost. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of those little things that will just gnaw at you. Um, and you can't. So, you know, th- no, there's not a single fight and there's not a single fighter. There's just, um, you know, there's 17 years of, of, uh, swollen hands and stitches. Like you, you got to go back to an era where I'm walking into a bar in New Orleans where they have rope attached to pillars and cardboard, um, on the floor. And like I fought there, you know, going, going to open weight fights in, um, in St. Augustine, Florida in the late nineties and, um, you know, bare knuckles with a guy that's 330 pounds, some Cuban that drove up from Miami and, um, sitting in a, in an inner tube with my hands inside of coolers full of ice. Cause they're so swollen. You know, that's like, there's, it's a weird legacy and that's why I don't care about it. Okay. And what was your experience with the UFC overall? You, you've said some, uh, I guess, uh, occasionally disparaging things about them. 
it's not, I mean, is it calling? I don't know if disparaging is the right word. That's a nitpick, but I, I have like cowboy tried to call things how I see them. And, you know, I, I see a company whose model is. From the precision shooting and air traffic center. Are you still there? Yep. Well, um, I, I see a, a company model who's it, entirely built off the sweat and blood of its athletes with, in comparison to all other professional sports, no plan safety nets or compensation for these guys. You know, it's like um, nine and a half for me and 0.5 for you. Um, that's insanity. You know what? Like baseball, you take a freaking wood bat and you hit a ball and you run to bases and those guys get 50% of the revenue where in MMA, it's like, I'm going to take my shin. I'm going to slam it against your face or I'm going to choke you unconscious and I'm going to get what decimal percentage of the gate. Like that is insanity. And, and so I think people need to have honest conversations when you look at guys that are struggling with uh, TBI and CTE, like guys that are having serious problems, hip replacements, knee replacements, 10 back surgeries like Ken Velasquez and, um, and, and an organizations that's like, well, don't you just want to be champion? So does it matter? Hmm. Okay. Um, as I said, b- before we did this, I, I wasn't aware of, too much of the the extent of of uh, your military career and, and how revered you are, for non-military guys like myself, could you just sort of briefly explain, you know, what makes the difference between a, a regular soldier comparatively to you know Navy SEALs versus Special Forces and, and Green Beret, and and how you sort of sit in the top echelon of that? Ooh, um, that's a hard thing to explain. So you have the military. Right. Um, and within the military, you have separate branches of service. Uh, you know, the, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, um, and then kind of the Coast Guard. The within that branch of service, you have combat and non-combat arms. So if you are combat arms, you're in the infantry or you are. Um, a artillery these are, you know, these, these are pretty amazing things. Um, and then within combat arms, you go up the next echelon, which is kind of the special operations community. Um, within the special operations community, you have, you know, army rangers, you have green berets, um, you have, you know, specialized units within those. Well, that, that's kind of the world that I came from. So after combat arms and the infantry and the army, you then go to a selection. And once you go to selection, if you get selected, you get to go to, um, you get selected to go to training. And that training is a year or two years of more selection. And then after that, you get to go to your team. And once you get to your team, they have more selection and more training. And then after that, you get to go to a specialized team. And if you want to, you can go to another selection. To and you just keep moving up that ladder. Yeah. Um, okay. And so does and, Green, Green uh, Beret tops that out? Does it? Within the Army, um, Army Special Forces, within the Special Operations Community, um, they're guerrilla warfare and unconventional warfare. So this is where things people get confused. Like, is SEAL Team Six the most elite? Well, I'll tell you what. I don't want to get in a gunfight with SEAL Team Six on a boat. Um, but if you're gonna 
take a group of guys and drop them behind enemy lines and try and have them build an army to to overthrow government or to fight the Taliban or the Al Qaeda, the ISIS. Like, guess who's there? The Green Berets. Um, so every there's there's enough specialized, specific job um, that there's a few tips of one spear. That sounds confusing, but you can't have one guy that can do everything like hostage rescue and counterterrorism, um, you know, anti-WMDEs, all, like all these very specialized things, counterinsurgency. Um, I And obviously as a Green Beret, a Ranger and a Special Forces sniper, um, I might be prejudiced, but I think that we are the best suited for what has been this war on terror for the past 20 years. Mm, okay. And the movies tend to portray, you know, life in the military as, as sort of a lot of downtime and boredom that's interspersed with, you know, uh, brief periods of, of like extreme action or, or violence. Is, is that accurate? Or, or I guess what's the, the day to day of, of your life when you're, involved in this i mean there's highs and lows there's a ton of great moments and a lot of really sucky moments you know you're packing pallets you're um cleaning guns you're zeroing weapons you're doing ammo forecasts you're going to the embassy to try to get a visa to this other country that you got to go work in um you're arguing with the state department person about what med cap um you know what medical Assets are going to be bringing into country. Um, you're you're in a fight with a psychops guy and a civil affairs guy because they think they're going to infill with you, but they don't have the qualifications to do it. So it's like a pain in the ass a lot of the time. <laughs> right. Okay, fair enough. Um, have, have, having served the the missions of, of Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I think are possibly a little bit different. Did you did you find the countries different? Or how did you find sort of the objectives and and working in both of those uh, nations? Uh, totally different. Okay. One <laughs> uh, one was an insurgency, and the other one was a counterinsurgency. You know, like one was uh, part of the culture. You know, Afghanistan. Like they've been fighting what they think to be insurgents their whole entire life. Um, you know, whether it was the Russians or the French or the Americans, um, that was just who, like, that's just who they are and what they do. Um, and so they were essentially counter insurgency. Like they're going to, and they've been doing that for a hundred years, a thousand, I mean, 500 years in Iraq. Um, you know, we come in and we're trying to set up a legitimate government and they're the insurgency. They're trying to overthrow said government. Um, and it was, you know, from the language to the culture, to the food, like, it's not just, I think a lot of people from television, it's like, Oh, it's the middle East. Like it's all one big thing. That's my point. Um, yeah. We're certainly not. And, oh my God. No, like everything about it is different to a degree that I can't even begin to explain um, from like patterns of clothes mattering um, that like if somebody's wearing the wrong pattern, like a blood and a crip in LA, 
in the eighties, you know, it's like if, if a group, a dude wearing a blue bandana sees a dude wearing a red hat, they're pretty much going to immediately fight to the death. Um, there's elements of that that go back a thousand years, um, that like cross religious and economic lines. Um, sometimes it's blood ties. Sometimes it's like that family disrespected or stole this person's horse or this person's daughter. And uh, nobody even knows why they hate each other, but like the, like the clouds, they still do. Um, uh, and that's just the way it is. Mm. It's weird. And, and what about, um, you know, cause again, this, the media on the war was very much about sort of which channel you would turn to sort of, you, you know, the, the CNN versus Fox news. Um, were there any issues about being viewed as, as liberators or captors the way that it was presented, depending upon which channel you flip to? Um, I know they both suck. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean like the um, American media, like it's not even news uh, and it hasn't been news for, I think a decade. Um, it, it's just, it's just about views and it's, it's just about people getting to turn to that station and then to get said number of people that are watching to buy into whatever propaganda you're trying to push from both sides. Mm. And, and what about as someone who served there, one of the issues that I guess has that, that I've always been concerned about, or, or at least what made sense to me, is sort of the narrative that originally that Iraq had chemical weapons and they didn't, and connections with like Dick Cheney and that sort of stuff. Does that sort of weigh on your mind, or do you have an opinion on that at all? No. <laughs> no, man. Um, like in 2006, Zarqawi had the butcher driving around, and anybody that didn't follow the Sharia law, he was taking a dude with a drill bit and drilling people's hands to things. Um, and then raping and torturing their kids while their hands were drilled to the wall. You know, like, I don't give a flying fuck if there's chemical weapons there. Like, that dude needs to get buried in the dirt. Um, you know, and I, I realize it's not our job to go around the world and save everybody. But in the face of pure evil, like, for evil to conquer, it just takes good men to do nothing. So what are we supposed to do in 1941 when we know that they're killing millions of Jews? Like, ah, whatever. That's just in Germany. And those are just Jews. You know, like, are you kidding me? No, we're going to go in there. You know, um, there has to be an element of humanity that is like whatever. I don't care what your excuse is, like gold or oil or WMDs or this dude is an asshole and needs to die. Fair enough. So what do you think about sort of, you know, uh, we're, we're hearing that ISIS has been crushed now in Syria. Yeah, they uh, what's, have been. Which is yeah. uh, fantastic. But what sort of happens with this now? I've seen it, you know, we've now got them returning back to the, this is happening, of course, in, here in Australia, where I'm from, which is, we have a, we have a lot of domestic homegrown terrorism in, in the UK and Canada where they're returning. How, how do you sort of think this is going to change the narrative where, where finally, perhaps, we're not fighting the battle on their terms in their land, but it's coming home? Uh, this has been my, my worst fears being realized, you know, where I loved fighting them over there. I was like, cool. All of the idiots from all of these countries are coming to one place. Um, it's really, you know, collateral damage was less of a, a thought because most of the people, like if I walk into a village and there's a hundred Taliban fighters there, there's pretty much anybody else that's in that village is probably supporting them to a degree. Um, like both, in their philosophy, theology, and um, like literal support. So 
now that's a little bit different, you know, when they're like sitting there in Sydney, you know, or they're in Melbourne, Michigan, uh, or Dearborn, Michigan. Like we got, and, and we're going to, I hate to say it, but like we're, we, we are going to have a rough 10 years ahead of us. Um, radical fanatics, regardless of religion are going to, for the first time, they're going to be home and, um, their views have not changed. Do you think it's only going to be 10 years? One of the things that was uh, interesting to me where they talk about uh, first-generation homegrown terrorists because their parents uh, immigrated to the land and they have sort of a self-identity crisis because they're not, they're not really of the nation that they're from and at the same time they don't necessarily feel like they're uh, completely of the nation where they're from because they, they look different, their culture's different. I've, I've read this before and I know that you've talked about it on, on somewhere else that I've seen. It seems to be a real... Uh, quite an issue. And I know that we're experiencing it here in Australia. Yeah. The, it, it gets more radical. Um, the further you're rem- removed from who, who and what you identify with. Um, so I say 10 years because um, if we do it properly and we have the proper laws about in- immigration and identify what radical looks like. Um, and we, we at collectively say, Hey, radicals in any form, you know, extremists, fanatics in, in any form, in any religion, um, whether it's a religious issue or a race issue or socioeconomic or even a government type, um, you know, like in Venezuela, you know, it's we uh, with a firm hand of, of fair justice will be treating everybody equally um, or we can just get along. And uh, like you can live peacefully cohabitating in, in one country like it can happen and it has happened. Um, you know, Christians and Muslims have lived in peace in numerous places on the planet for centuries. Um, and uh, it's it's when that seed of radical gets in there that you got to just drop a metal gauntlet of justice. Do, do you think that we've sort of learned anything uh, from, from I guess, exporting democracy? So, uh, you know, for a number of years, the the American position was exporting nation building. And once we saw this Arab Spring, we saw sort of even worse people fall into the void after, um, you know, destroying the di- dictatorship now. Do you think there's anything to be learned from that? Or does it change the outlook, uh, I guess, on uh, on what countries should be doing internationally with their military presence? So while democracy is good, um, the United States is not a democracy, right? I think a lot of people, we're a constitutional republic. Um, while we want people to live in democratic states, um, clearly dictatorships are bad. Um, socialism and con- communism uh, historically have all turned fairly, if not extremely violent. Um, you know, the, uh, so I, I think there's an element of like, Hey, why don't you, y'all just give this a chance, give, give this whole, like, you know, living peacefully and, and everybody getting a say in, in how this country is going to work is, is a really cool concept in practice. It's, it's sometimes really violent and it's really ugly. And when they try it and it doesn't work, um, 
it ends up badly or, um, you know, Venezuela is a great example of like, Hey, we are going to do it for a while, but then oh, look at this, this, the grass on the other side of this green fence is way greener over there. Um, we'll try the socialism concept and give that a whirl. Um, and then kids are starving in the street and, and the police are in riot gear, you know, shooting people. Um, we're just a, we're a jacked up species. We're an imperfect. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, uh, I guess we can probably talk about Trump and, and I guess how that affects the, the military as well. So he, um, uh, he, he campaigned on, on, you know, getting the nation out of these foreign wars. We know the, uh, the national debt is, it's enormous because of both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan continuing. Uh, d- do you think sort of identifying the amount of debt and, and obviously the people lost in the war, uh, will, will America sort of change its stance, I guess, on, on foreign intervention or how do you see, uh, I'm not talking about the morality of it, but I just mean from from a standpoint of government. Do you think things will adapt or or evolve at, at all over the next few decades? I have no idea. <laughs> I got, I'm going to put that with such like a huge exclamation mark of I have no idea um, because I don't think anybody in the United States has any idea what's going to happen. Um, we had no idea what was going to happen in 2016. We had no idea what was happening in 2018. We have no idea what's going to happen in 2020. Um, you know, and we have these two extreme polarizing groups, you know, here it's like the, the liberal progressives and the conservatives and the Republicans, like the, 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 the Democrats. And it's, it's just the most divisive time where these outliers, these far extreme 1% are getting the loudest voice and the most attention. And it's really weird. Like everybody else, like the other ninety-eight percent on the inside of these extreme one percent on the outside, are like, what? What the hell is going on with these people? Like, I don't want that, you know. And like that one percent thinks that the forty-nine percent is supporting them, and it's not. It's like we we just think they're insane, but we don't know what else to do, so we're having to pick the between the lesser of two evils. And um, so, no, yeah, man, I have no idea. And uh, you know, talking about sort of the left versus right, I mean, it is huge. The the online space is a bit of an echo chamber. I mean, have you had to deal with, or, or what do you really say to people, um, you know, from leftist groups who really denigrate the work that you do? And, and you know, I don't really want to go into detail about it, but you know what I'm talking about, where they just consider you you people thugs, effectively, even though you're the the work that you do, and, and don't refuse to sort of acknowledge uh, the the good work and the commitment and the self sacrifice that uh, that soldiers put in. I don't know what to tell them. Um... I try to show them kindness and patience. Um, I try to explain as best I can. Um, it's, it's really just anytime somebody comes, especially at me, um, you know, with, with hate or bitter or, you know, like I'm just part of the problem, you know, like I'm, I'm the, the war industrial portion of the American government that's just perpetuating these wars. You know, I get what they're saying. I do but they're all, they also have no idea what they're talking about. So there, there's, there's a bit of pity. Um, they're, I'm recognizing the ignorance on their part and I feel sorry for them. Um, and, and then I also feel sorry for them because of just how hateful they are. Like I've never seen how much I've never seen it in, in my life in 40 years, you know, so much hate all the time and an access and avenue and an opportunity to put that hate out there. 
via social media. You know, like we've never had a town hall nationally. You know, like I remember like as a kid, you could go to the city hall and, and you could go to city councils and you like could, you could talk. But there was no internet. It was like beep, 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 beep <laughs> to like to dial in. Um, and I had a Commodore 64. But now like somebody in New York can be arguing with somebody in California that is arguing about what we're doing in Texas. And um, and that's normal. And and both of those voices are very mean and hateful. So I, I have to be empathetic and, and sympathize with their perspective and be like, man, I, I appreciate what you're saying. And I, and I, I recognize your viewpoint, but you guys are crazy. You know, like I, I get that there's a problem with this, this, this industry of war that we have and of debt and these things that we've been doing for decades. Um, you know, but on, on the flip side, you both sound like crazy people. So maybe take it from the 11 that you're at down to a logical, rational three, and maybe we can have a conversation. But at this juncture, I don't know what I can do. Like, I don't know how I can talk to you. Yeah, it's so certainly. I just try, I, yeah. Sorry, so it certainly seems like like the the people that put themselves out there as progressives are, as you said, the the most perpetually angry. It doesn't seem like um anything can can appease them, especially. Uh, I think what's most interesting to me is that the work that you guys are trying to achieve in the countries that you go into are, are what they're denigrating you about, which is, you know, the, the, the freedom to have a voice for free speech, the, um, the education of women. I mean, these are, these are very laudable goals that I, I think they, they go off on you guys as, as, as the wrong target. Yeah. When I got to Iraq and Afghanistan, both times, they were taking gays and throwing them off of rooftops. You know, and then, and then then they look at me and they're like, um, "What? You're not for LGBT?" I'm like, "No, no, man. I I really like super M, like to a degree where I shot somebody in the face to try and protect a gay guy on a roof. You know, like I'm actively trying to save their lives. Like, what are you doing besides yelling at me? <laughs> yeah. Um, out of ignorance. You know, like it it is such. It's almost and that's where that pity comes from. Where I almost feel sorry for them." Mm. You just don't understand. Yeah, it really comes down to, I think, as well, is, is people haven't done anything challenging in their own lives that makes them have to self-reflect, I think, in a lot of times. And, and that's one of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed about seeing, you know, where, where you are. And it's, it's sort of a segue into my next question because you, you, you know, with your role in the military, you've obviously had to go into the areas that people don't want to go into and do the things that other people would never have to do in their life. And one of the things that I've seen come out of it is that, again, I, I can't verify the statistic, but I've heard that nowadays there's more deaths from people that have served in the military from suicide at the cause of things like PTSD. How – I assume that this must affect you in some way, but you don't show it on the outside. How how do you deal with these things and how do you sort of um, – I guess, what's your opinion on the fact that you've served with so many people who have, have suffered from this and, and have fallen because of it, even if not during their time in the military? Um, well, I'm, I'm human. You know, I've, I've seen horrible things. I've seen friends on fire. Um, you know, I've heard babies cry and women cry from things that I've done. Um, and, um, you know, silence is, is as, as frightening as uh, screaming. Sometimes I'll take screaming over silence. Uh, but the, like, I, I never had a buy-in that I'm part of the greater good. And I think a lot of guys that would rationalize or explain 
to themselves about the things that they were doing. Like, okay, I'm doing this because, you know, like the, the war on terror or, you know, like we're, we're fighting an even worse guy or, you know, and they're all, it's all bullshit logic. For me, it was, um, recognizing and focusing on what I as a single individual was doing. Um, and I was always trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, it's not that I don't wake up at night and, in sweats and tremors, sometimes I do. It's not like there, I don't have regret about things that I, that I had done. Um, because I do, um, it's that the reason that I did them was, was pure. You know, I was trying to protect, I was trying to preserve, I was trying to save. Um, I, I never had the Nazi. I was just following orders. Like that was never, not once ever. Can I say, oh yeah, I was just following orders. Like I would never do that. I'm just going to do the right thing. How about I do that? And um, and now I think this 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 regiment, this purpose of my life of teaching people how to save people people's lives through like sheepdog response, uh, being so involved in so many different charitable organizations, human trafficking, counter poaching, um, you know, helping friends just sometimes with their their ranches and their farms. Um, picking up a friend at two o'clock in the morning that's been drinking too much because, you know, he woke up and having nightmares about some trip in Iraq. Um, I can make a difference and I'm still trying to make a difference. Uh, and I'm just trying to magnify that voice so that I can make more of a difference. And that's kind of where I am now is I'm just trying to make a difference. Okay, cool. Um, the, the military culture in America is quite unique. One of, one of the other things that I see online that I, that I've never understood, but it seems to be really big out there. Now people are videoing them and capturing them is this stolen valor thing where people who have never served wear military uniforms around apparently just to get some recognition. Have you seen this firsthand or do, do you hear stories about it? Cause it seems like it's quite a big thing where it certainly is not common over here. Yeah. I mean, it always has, you know, two dudes go fishing. They come back, they get a beer and the fish that was 12 inches is now 14 inches. And then two years later, the fish that was 14 inches was now four feet long, you know? And then, um, by the time they tell the grandkids, it was, um, it was a barracuda, uh, that had crossbred with a great white, you know, like the, <laughs> the fish just keeps getting bigger. So we, we have a disease of entitlement that is, um, that kind of crosses a lot of, a lot of lines, um, and one of those lines that has recently crossed is into the veteran culture where like you people feel like they're entitled to something. Uh, and they're like, so they'll, they'll exaggerate or they'll fake to get that thing that they think that they're entitled to. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, but I also think that like welfare, um, any entitlement program, unless it's helping somebody get a leg up to improve their life so they can be self-sustaining, you know, is, is kind of crazy. And this is just another element of crazy entitlement. Interesting. What about, uh, I wasn't going to ask this, but you sort of mentioned it. Um, do, do veterans get adequate support there? It's one of the things that they talk about that there's no support after they come back. Um, you're obviously on your feet. You're doing very well for yourself, but is this an issue over there? Yeah, it's, 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 it's been an issue since the beginning of war, which goes, I mean, since two dudes, since one dude took a rock and crushed the other dude's head, um, we've had a problem with, with being able to protect our, and provide adequately. You said, 
are our veterans getting adequate care? Well, I don't know exactly what adequate means. Um, when I signed up, they didn't even really promise you that you're going to get two meals in a cot. They, they pretty much – they didn't. You know, like you're going into special forces. that You're going to get beaten and you're going to get starved. So you – like my expectation of what I was going to be getting was nothing. Like I realized I'm probably not going to get a bed. I'm probably not going to get food and I'm probably going to be beaten. I'm going to probably be blown up. I'm going to probably get shot at and I'm going to jump out of airplanes. Like that was the um, – that was just the buy-in to it, you know? Um, okay, so we're, we're talking about Trump as well. You said online, I remember you were saying originally when he was campaigning, not a fan of him. Then you had the opportunity to meet him. Uh, he was still, I think he had just started his presidency. We're now a few years in. He's going for re-election. Um, positive, negatives, would you still would you still side by him? <laughs> would I still do what by him? So, Well, I guess you didn't, didn't vote for him in the first place. But, uh, I did I mean, not. Uh, so... But uh, it, it's very interesting to me that, again, I'm an outsider looking in. But uh, America is this—you know—we get we get a lot of your your television and what carries over. And it's it's funny to me that there doesn't seem to be a, a Democratic nominee right now who's just sort of talking about traditional blue collar employment issues, which is what Trump picked up on, and it's now all identity politics. Uh, so it's quite and it's quite interesting how how much the media gets wrong about him where they say, oh, he's doing this, but obviously he's got support or something under it. So it's just uh, be interested to get your sort of take on it when you were not a fan, then you said, I I can um, I can side by him, but now he's had a few years to sort of prove himself and, and your impressions of that. I am a fan of um, the things that have happened both in the military and um, as a entrepreneur, like the things that have happened economically, um, these are, you know, like the economy is pretty awesome right now. <laughs> um, taxes are lower than they have been in a really long time for me and for a business. Um, you know, it's, we make t-shirts and we import things from all over the world to do that. And, um, some of those things are a little bit more accessible than they have ever been. So there's like a lot of things that are great about that. Uh, you know, we were starting this conversation, I guess in the middle talking about immigration and, and radical extremists coming back to their respective countries. Um, immigration is a, is a major talking discussion point right now in this country. Um, I have always believed that we should have a very high bar set for immigrants. I think there should be a clear defined immigration process. And I don't think that just because you want to go somewhere, you get to go there. That's not, it's not, I'm not a believer in open borders and the way that things are headed with crazy people coming back from wars, uh, that just anybody gets to come in. That's just not how it should be. And I don't want to have to be in a gunfight with somebody in my front lawn because they see I'm flying an American flag and they think that's a, a form of hate. Um, so that's, you know, another major, what I think will be a campaign element for Trump is, uh, is immigration. And, um, so there's a lot of things where I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. And then, and then he like gets on Twitter. I'm like, God, <laughs> what, what is happening right now? Like, is this my president? You know, and then he's like arguing with the attorney of some porn star. And I'm like, what? You know, and then like. You know, then the flip 
and that's like embarrassing, you know, and I'm traveling overseas and somebody's like, did you see what Trump said today? I'm like, no, I, I didn't look no, like I can't, um, you know, and then there's the flip side where like the Mueller report just came in and like half of the country is legitimately sad and disappointed that our president was not in collusion with a foreign nation. Yeah, it's, I find it really ridiculous that there's this. Um, I haven't seen the clip, but again, uh, I was I was being told that Rachel Maddow was crying on CNNBC about this, and I just how uh, the the one thing I, I have to I have to compliment a lot of Americans that when Trump was elected, they said, "Look, I, I was not a Trump fan. And I didn't like him, but I'd certainly never ever wish our our president ill will." And I'm just blown away that that there's certain segments of your country that would rather see him turn out to be this mad They're disappointed that our president wasn't colluding I know. in a Russian agent with Putin. That's insane. It is. It is. It is very, very much so. Um, I'll use this as a segue. Cause again, when I, before, when I was listening to some of your other interviews before we had the chance to talk today, you were, you had gone through the process of why you would never vote for Hillary and some issues related to Benghazi and her management style. Could you, just sort of explain this again for, uh, you know, for a lot of people who, who wouldn't have heard that portion. Oh, um, so within the military, you know, you've, we've talked about quite a bit. We're, we're a pretty unique culture and group of people. We also don't forget things. So, um, you know, like Hanoi Jane, when Jane Fonda went to the Vietnam government and, you know, gave the names of the POW people that were there to um, the Viet Cong, like not any veteran is ever going to f- forgive Jane Fonda for doing that. Like that was 60 years ago, you know, or 50 years ago. Uh, we're never going to forgive her. Like we're not going to forgive her kids or her kids' kids. You know, like if I hear the Fonda name, I'm like, I'm not going to go see that movie or I'm not going to vote for him or whatever. Well, you so mentioned the, the McLeods of Scotland, and when we were over there, this this has been going on for hundreds of years between uh, the 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 McLeods, if if you're familiar with that story. Yeah, yeah, right. that's why I used them. Like that, that <laughs> is very much how the military is um, when it comes to how we're treated. So the Clintons, on two different occasions, pretty much were like, "Ooh, sucks to be you guys on the ground." Hopefully you're figuring it out, but we're not going to provide any support. And to save our political career, we're just not going to talk about it. Um, one was infamously Black Hawk Down, and um, and then the second one was Benghazi. When uh, the first one was Bill Clinton, and the second one was Hillary Clinton. Um, in both instances, uh, they had the opportunity to help, and they um, specifically did not. So Benghazi, uh, we had we were doing shady things on the ground. We were buying weapons from uh, a former terrorist group and selling them to a new terrorist group that kind of supported us to fight a different terrorist group that we didn't like. So um, that was some you know CIA stuff with some Department of State stuff. So. Um, the ambassador was traveling to Benghazi on, ironically, 9-11. And, um, you know, Ambassador Stevens was coming. He's a true believer. Like, he really thinks that, you know, you can help this country and this continent. We're going to do these things. And, um, you know, the Secretary of State, who is the ambassador's boss, is Hillary Clinton. Um, President Obama is in the White House at the time. 
And um, we know a bunch of terrorists are coming to try and kill the ambassador. Uh, there's a bunch of CIA guys that are paramilitary special operations, special forces, rangers, Navy SEAL types um, in a substation not too far from where the consulate is, where the ambassador is. And um, we are like, hey, we need to go save this guy because he and everybody there is going to die. And um, the the group on the ground would not get authorization to go and save the ambassador or the other Americans. It's pretty much like, good luck, sucks to be them. So that's the beginning of what ends up being 13 hours of a gunfight and, um, you know, amassing hundreds of enemy insurgents coming to like once the consulate fell and the ambassador is missing, um, whether he's being tortured or raped or murdered or uh, dying of being suffocated, nobody, lots of different arguments about what happened to him that aside that whole entire group was moving to the next group of americans to kill all of them and every one of them is on the phone being like hey we're all gonna die here if we don't get help and there when i say there's nowhere in the in a, on this planet that american is that there's not a group of americans ready to come and save them um that's a, that's a pretty cool thought Maybe not to a foreign person, but to an American. <laughs> um, like I don't care where you are, American. Like you know, you you put up the red, white, and blue. Come and save me. Like there, there's a group of pretty badass dudes that are standing by, ready to come and save you. Well, those dudes that were ready to be sent and were standing by to come and save our fellow Americans were just time after time again told no. Um, and uh, that that's that's unforgivable. Like, sorry, you guys are there. Um, I don't want what we were doing there to come to light. So good luck. And, um, that's, that's a real, it's a real hard pill to swallow as a military person. Um, not that that's not even a, like, I, th I think a lot of people assumed, uh, so I, I think it's been clear that I'm, I'm not a Republican. <laughs> I am not a Democrat and, uh, you know, like I don't play into party politics. I, I, I really have, I hope a clear view of what is right and wrong. Um, and, and that changes, that shifts. I have conversations with people all the time and, and my perception on something might change. Uh, but some things are pretty solid and, um, that, that view of right and wrong is, is, is how I view politics are and you, politicians. Are you spiritual at all with, with the things that you've gone through? Um, sort of God and, and military seems to be hand in hand over there. Yeah, uh, you know, but God and I got a lot to figure out. Um, <laughs> you know, I uh, I definitely believe in, in a higher power, and uh, I believe um, that that higher power is involved in what we do and what we say. Um, you know, but an all loving God, you know, I I get free will and I get. Uh, forgiveness and um but all loving god i just the things that i've seen us do to each other um i just don't know if an all loving god could do that all right okay so well he and i will figure that out um, in due time there. okay yeah um one of the things that was interesting to me is I'm told that you're friends with Alex Jones. Now, I don't watch a lot of Alex Jones because I I certainly subscribe to the fact that that I find it really hard to digest a lot of the things that he says as as conspiracy theory and, and hyperbole. So, how how did that friendship develop and 
And and sort of where do you guys find a common ground to you know sit around and have a beer and have a chat? Um, we don't have a lot of beers. Uh, we don't have a lot of chats. Uh, yeah, I um, I don't know if friends the right word. He and I have a mutual friend who is my best friend. Uh, my best friend and Alex Jones grew up together and went to high school together. And um, while there's not a lot of from you know conspiracy theories and things that he says on his show, um, I don't I don't listen to his show. What I do listen to is that he is a passionate American that really believes in freedom, and um, and I like that. And I also like somebody on like the ACLU side that really likes freedom and is really passionate about it. And I also like somebody from the NRA. Um, that is really passionate about freedom and really vocal about it, you know, cause that's what freedom of speech is about. Like that really beautiful first amendment of the constitution. So like, I, I think that in the United States, we're supposed to like, if two people couldn't say things that make their respective blood boil, then I, as, as a protector of the constitution have failed, Right. Like my job is to protect the constitution. I swore to it, foreign and domestic. So that there is a degree of me that is listening to these two extreme sides say these, say these very extreme things. And I'm like, yeah, man, you guys got the right to say it. I think you're stupid. I think what you're saying is absolutely idiotic. And you guys sound like crazy people. But it's really cool that you can say that. Well, do you think that's going to change over time? Because you know you're protected by the right to say things, but now virtually every social media and news outlet platform is taking that ability away because they're private companies. So you constantly hear about people being told that they can't say this online or this anymore, and it, it takes away your ability for for free speech. Yeah. So those are private companies. Like I, you do not have the right to say whatever you want on somebody else's. F- um, platform. Like I can't walk into a business, um, that sells pizza. That's a privately owned business, um, on private property and be like, Oh my gosh, you guys can't eat pizza. You I'm lactose. Let's pretend I'm lactose intolerant. And I think Italians are stupid. And I'm going to walk in there and be like, be like, this came from the Italians and, and, um, and this has gluten in it and it has, and it has cheese in it. Like the property owner can be like, Hey man, you're in my business. I'm going to ask you to leave. Like, I don't have the right. Yeah, I don't have the right to be in there. Well, that's how we are with social media. We assume that that is our right to to say whatever we want on there. And and you can say whatever you want on there, but it's also they own it. So we just need to – I think what has to happen first is we collectively need to recognize that um, those outlets are censoring what we're saying. Like they, they, they you know, Twitter shadow shadow banning voices that they don't agree with or – you know, Facebook is going to not have an article populate as often that is pro-Trump as was pro-Hillary Clinton. Like we know that this is the case. The the platforms acknowledged it. So as a consumer, you get to vote with your dollar and you get to vote with your time. And hopefully we become educated enough to recognize and understand that that's what's happening. Um, I I I find the social platforms to be really, really creepy because, you know, I watch friends um, that will say things like, if you voted for Trump, I don't want to be friends with you. Um, I want you to delete me as a friend, um, and I think that you're atrocious. 
So, like, do you just want to be in an echo hall chamber where everybody is just agreeing with you? Like, this sounds weird to me. Um, or where the platform itself is then censoring what people are saying um, because it doesn't agree with what their CEO or what the um, whatever new analytics um, and insights they're using to 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 determine what, determine what kind of speech is appropriate. Um, so I don't know. I think it's you know we're growing. It's going to kind of work itself out. Do you? Um, I forgot to ask the question before when it, when you, we were talking about Alex Jones. Is there any? You would have seen some stuff, I guess, probably you know underneath the scenes. Um, are there any conspiracy theories you believe in, or things that are actually factual though that that people misconstrue all the time? Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist guy. I mean, I think some people, um, like things that are pretty normal to me, um, you know, like bin Laden's dead. Yeah. Sorry guys. He's not hidden somewhere. Um, you know, that a lot of people were saying that there was conspiracy theory about what happened in Benghazi. There's not, that's, that's just what happened. You know, like we got, we got left to die. Um, and people did that for their political careers. Like that's just what happened. Um, that's not (laughs) so, uh, but like, you know, Columbine or like a red, uh, black flag up. I don't know about any of that stuff. And I don't care. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, speaking of Columbine, it's a good thing. I, I think we'll, we'll just start to wind down now, but one of the things I was going to ask you about, um, I, I believe in people's right to, to carry guns as well, but there's in America, it's, uh, it's particularly extreme when, um, when we've got these issues of, you know, people opening fire, opening fire in schools and, and owning, Guns and, and things that are bigger than, than handguns. Do you, do you think there needs to be any moderation or regulation around gun laws in, in the States? No. Um, I, I think we have a culture problem right now. Like we have, we have kids that are competing to kill more kids in schools. Um, like, I mean, I grew up in a time where you could bring a gun to school where they taught shooting in school. Like, Think about that. That was just one generation ago. And now if like my, 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 one of my kids brings a, a pocket knife, like a folding case with to, to, in their backpack, they're, they're like, yeah. Um, a lot of people, when, when they, when they look at the second amendment, they're like, oh, they, they didn't imagine the weapons that they would have nowadays. Like they would have never known what an AR-15 looks like. Um, they had, at the time, you were allowed to legally own a cannon in your house. A cannon. <laughs> you know, you were allowed to have a Gatling gun. Like, that existed. The technology was there and they knew that it was coming. And for that reason, they specifically said, yeah, you can have this because the, the preponderance of power is always supposed to rest in the hands of the people. And anytime that people are, are afraid of what the government is going to do, um, for their voice, for their speech, um, when the people are scared, then, then we've really lost freedom. And, and we're, we, we have been at a really scary point where like who really has the power? Um, you know, then the argument is, well, we're talking about the American war industrial complex. Like nobody can beat them. I was like, well, do you know what? I've been in Afghanistan. I've, I've watched people that can't read kick our ass for 15 years and they have muskets. They have goddamn muzzle loaders. So like don't like don't don't be throwing that shade because I come from places that can give you a legitimate answer about what one man with a gun can do. So, you know, it's 
it really just comes down to freedom. And man, I love me some freedom. Cool. Um, I, I didn't mean, uh, it's, it's, it's rare for me to get the opportunity to chant the chance to speak to someone like you, who's done all the service and ask these sort of questions. So I appreciate that, but you've, you've moved on. Are you, are you still doing TV at the moment? Uh, are you with A&E doing this hunting, uh, Hitler show? Yeah. So I, I did three seasons with, with history channel and A&E. Um, then I went to discovery channel and I'm doing some shows at discovery channel. So I'm still going to be doing more television. Um, you know, a lot of like survival, um, helping people out type things, um, bringing recognition to groups of, of people that do extraordinary things. Um, so a lot more of that to come, but, uh, so yeah, I guess, yes, yes. Still doing television. And you've got Ranger up as your, your clothing line. Yeah. Ranger up is, uh, the baddest t-shirt company on the planet. Um, and I got sheepdog response that is a defensive tactics company that teaches people about all the things we've been talking about, how glorious and beautiful freedom is. And, um, and I got Whoopies, a shoe company that makes, you know, shoes to kind of de- designed by a special operations guy. Um, you know, I got my, my paws and all sorts of stuff. Awesome. Uh, well, Tim, I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me today. I know that you're quite in demand and look, it's been really cool. As I said, uh, you know, you talk about sort of globalization and I live on the other side of the planet and I get to see you doing all this cool stuff by just hopping on a computer screen. So I appreciate you taking time out of your day. Absolutely. Well, God bless. Take care.